0: This is potentially catastrophic. I have a whole stack of books to read. Joy Harjo's Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. Venice by Jan Morris. Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. Romeo and Juliet. And there's a whole bunch of books I read before. It's from the 1st of March, 2016. From the 27th of April, 27th of July. So I guess the only thing to do is see how the books speak to each other. Okay. Oh, brilliant. This is probably going to get weird. Uh, Good morning, y'all. It is morning and it is hot because it is St. Louis and that's what you get for living in St. Louis. So, uh, today is episode 15. I am going to take this time to do a little bit of a catch-up and a check-in and a... a small bit of fact-checking as well, and, um, and then tomorrow we will return to the regularly scheduled nonsense. So, um, with that in mind, going back to Episode 9, um, which I am calling Broken and Fatal. We talked or I talked about Romeo and Juliet by Liam Shakespeare and The Obelisk Gate by M. K. Jemison. Hilariously, the day that I recorded that, I also had Reading Group that night and <clears throat> and so we talked about Romeo and Juliet. And um, and it got me thinking about that not only I mean, even though there are practical reasons for the the atmospheres of those books to be necessarily incredibly important. I mean, the first book in the Broken Earth trilogy is called The Fifth Season. The trilogy is called The Broken Earth. Like, the land, the weather, the air you breathe, the water you drink, these are incredibly important parts of the story. They are affected by the seasons, as well as the humans and other living beings are affected by the seasons. Um, And it's the same with Romeo and Juliet. You know, I had made the observation that all of the adults are up all night and all of the kids aren't. And it's, you know, they're, they're talking about heat and somebody made the point that that's Italy in the summer. And I thought, yes, but this is also a very meaningful choice to make that you're using a situation that is practical to frame drama and a specific narrative and i I got to thinking about how in some ways you lead then to an upside down social system that isn't actually upside down i mean in both broken earth and Romeo and Juliet you're never not aware of the larger governmental system even even as it is decaying you know there's still a prince in one case there's still an empire in the other you still have the, the reality that at some point this will end and things will return to a status quo and it is within that knowledge that people's roles sort of go topsy-turvy right so um, Juliet is the one who takes charge in her relationship with Romeo. We see her relationship with her parents in a way that we don't see her rela- um, Romeo's relationship with his parents. Um, she is very aware of her emotions, and she's the youngest person in the play. So that in and of itself is just an upside down. Nasan is the person who has to manage her travel companion, who is her father, who is considerably older than she is. Um, And, you know, and at some point, they, those two young girls stop being in charge, right? Like at some point, somebody else becomes the manager again. And, And that's sort of how and as things progress towards their ends. Um, a thing that I find very interesting also is that um, the change that comes is huge, right? So, like, at the end of Romeo and Juliet, there there's no legacy for the Capulets and the Montagues anymore. It's done. Those kids are done, and they are not going to have any more babies. Like, Lady Capulet probably... No, she couldn't. I mean, that's part of the statement, right? Is that she was so young when she had Juliet that she couldn't have any more children and Lady Montague has died. And the old men are old. Like, they're probably never going to remarry. So those those lines, that inheritance, it's done. And, you know, at the end of Broken... Earth, and I'm saying this because everybody knows the end of Romeo and Juliet. I am not going to spoil the end of Broken Earth except to say that it's pressing towards and a change to the status quo that takes a lot of work and, um, and, and yeah, I think that that's both, I, I, I find that a really unexpected connection, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of chewing on this one, um, more than I thought that I would cause it's, it's so out there, but it makes perfect sense. It's an excellent story. You know, you have, father-daughter struggles, you have mother-daughter struggles, the daughter becomes the focus of the story, and, and Juliet, really, in many ways, does become the focus of, of Romeo and Juliet, even though there are, obviously, many other characters, and another person in the title of the play, but but in it, it, the, the shift that is led to is so great, and the, the number of sacrifices that have to be made in order to get there are so large, and, and they are of such A personal nature. Um, I I find that really, really, really fantastic. Um, The other thing that I really wanted to say is that I made a comment about Essen's capacity to love and I feel that that was a lazy comment that I would like to elaborate on. Essen loves her daughter so fiercely and so purely and with such focus as much as she can she is a very damaged person that doesn't mean her love isn't real it doesn't make it muddy it doesn't make it thin it just means that she is loving from a place that does not know how to love without harm and and some of it is caused by her and some of it was cause to her. So there's just harm around her conception of love. And, and I need to say that because I, I have so much respect for Eson and I, I respect so much the decisions that she's made and, and I feel that she is faced with impossible choices and she manages to find a way. And I find that admirable, respectable, incredible. She's an amazing character. And I, at no point want to suggest that somebody who is damaged cannot love it is rather that it's it's just it's hard and it's harder and it's not going to perform the same as somebody who has not been as damaged um yeah therapists and counselors make lots of money off of that which is fine because we need them so that is not cynical okay on to episode 10 which i called separated by learning this was Rebound, the um, How to Make Crafty Handmade Books by Janine Stein, and Death in Spring by Mercè Rodoreda, translated by Martha Tennant. So, I'm mentioning it, because I keep pecking at it, even though there's nothing there. Like, there's there's literally nothing there. Um, the There's connection to home and small things that make home, and focus on preserving the fragility of men, but like, there's just nothing. And I'm, I'm so frustrated, <laughs> I'm so frustrated. I want there to be more, I want that to be cool. Uh, so I'm gonna keep pecking at it. Um, and uh, at some point I will, I will stop, but uh, today is not that day. Okay, episode 11, uh, How Fragile the Lives. This is uh, Eloquent Rage by Brittany Q. Cooper, our second viewing of her, and the, oh no, I don't like that phrase. It's the second episode that I talked about her in, and The Veins of the Ocean by Patricia Engel. Um, quick fact, check. Reina, who is the protagonist of the novel, is from Colombia. Um, that's really the only fact I had to check. Um, there's a lot of connection between these books but I realized that there's such nuanced relationships and they they go to poetry and to the ocean and um, I realized that in order to see them I need I need more books around them so um, I, I I realized that uh, I was thinking about the compassion with which the authors speak of movements towards love and the risks and adventures that lead to it and i i'm not I'm not up to it right now um, with what I have so this is a pair of books that um I'm going to consider a free radical in search of another pair of books to um, to sort of bond and see if I can have more to say about things that I know are real. Um, but I can't I can't frame them as yet. Okay, um, episode 12, Honest and Open Way. So this was The Summer of Jordi Perez by Amy Spaulding and Shall Cross by C.D. Wright. So this is another one that's going to take some care. I was thinking about um, aspirational connections, uh, especially we listen to the episode where, you know, I see YA as aspirational and I hear the voice of C.D. Wright as aspirational. Um, and and I'm curious about that. Uh, There's some connection between Jordi, Jordi Perez and C.D. Wright in the sense that they are both um, sort of permagoths and poets and photographers um, who are focused on the real life events of people and sort of photojournalism, um, but in very different ways. So I think that's uh a, a really interesting connection, but I am not in a position to pursue it because I have not reread Shall Cross yet. Episode 13. Okay, this one actually got really this is gonna need more too. Um I called this episode Disconnected State. Um this was Among Flowers and, uh, by Jamaica Kincaid and War, So Much War by Marseille Rodoreda. Um, oh, and I did, P.S., look it up, and my pronunciation of Rodoreda was as close as I am going to get because I don't know how to roll my R's. Um, so, oh, I listened to the episode again, and I finally understood the sentence that I had not understood before. The problem is I did not write it as a poem, so I was parsing it like it was a sentence, and it was not. Um, and I have to remember to do that in my notes from, from here on. It is tough sometimes when you are a poet and you forget about poeting and you write a sentence in prose that should have a line break and it doesn't. And you're like, but I, I had meaning and I lost the meaning. There's not enough space for the word to have meaning. So, uh, notes to self. If you mean to write a poem, put a line break in because, you know, sometimes that's how you read the meaning. Um, So, I do have Rodoreda's novels, so that's exciting, because I I would like to reread them at some point. Um, I have written, there's a dream quality to these books, the Jamaican Kincaid and the Rodoreda. Veils that erase the connective tissue between the speakers and their pasts, or presents, or selves, for startling moments of time. As someone who revels in the feeling of being in motion because of how defined I feel, it is powerful to be confronted with someone else's strong and permeating sense of something entirely other. There is a lot to consider about the disconnects of war and of travel. So I'm I'm actually really intrigued by the linguistic connections between these two books and the way that they express. Paradoxes, or difficult existential moments, or um, extraordinarily physically difficult moments, in language that is dreamlike—not in the way that, like N.K. Jemisin writes, a child's voice, which is also somewhat dreamlike. This is a very different sort of. There's a um, a complication, a level of richness that comes with being, you know, somebody who who has many things to attach to a moment, rather than almost no things to attach to a moment. Does that make, if that makes any kind of sense? But there's a veil that I was thinking about, like, you know, if you were to put tracing paper over a map, what would disappear? It would not change the, the actuality of the relationships of places to each other, at least as represented on that map. But you wouldn't, Necessarily be able to see all the ways that they're connected to each other, and and that's sort of how I feel um, thinking about these these two books is that for very different reasons, um, you're only going to get so much, and 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 it's partly you know, and in the case of war, so much war, there's there's a double layer double layer of veil, um, but I I am. I, I was not aware that I saw connections or or similarities between well written travel and um a a novella or a novel about about war um and yet the more I think about it, the more i'm like you know the things that I've read about war are very that have been well been well written um have have been very dreamlike in that way i've been made of seemingly unconnected moments that are connected by the, the speaker's experience. And that's sort of all you're going to get because that's all the speaker has in those moments um, is like flashes. And the thing that you know is that one thing happened after this other thing and that they happened to the same person. And that's sort of it. Um, I am curious to see if anybody else has, um, has studied that. Because I think it's it's worth looking at. Okay, so episode 14 um, is called We Also Ungrow. And this one is uh, This Too Shall Pass by Milena Bushkit. And The Kingdom of Gods by M.K. Jemison. Okay, a little bit of fact checking here. Um, Sia is like immortal. He is way, way older than any number of years that a human can convey or understand. He's a God. Uh, He is also the main character of Kingdom of Gods. I had conflated the plots of two books and uh, that was my mistake in my defense. It's been two years. So um, yes, fact checking is done. I talked a lot in that episode about um, the process of maturing, not necessarily growing up, because I don't think that's what they're about, but of, of changing. And of how um, childhood is is perceived as this very stubborn moment of unchange, even though you're, you're changing so fast. Uh, so a thing that I realized also is that there is a connection of place in the sense that Sia, because he's been a child for his entire existence, um, was obviously not in Sky during his childhood, but Sky is a place of torment and an extraordinarily long period of time that has a very complicated set of um, meanings for him. And the beach house in This Two Shall Pass, while it has much more positive um, connotations for the main character, Blanca, It is still a place where, you know, neither one of these characters necessarily experienced meaningful growth. (laughs) They just were and experienced those places in as much as they could during the time that they were there. Sia experienced Sky for 2,000 years. Was it 2,000 years? And uh, it was bad the whole time. Like, it was not good. Um, so there's, there's that, which I find really intriguing as someone who does not have a childhood place that is still available to me to go back to and moved a lot. We moved a lot. I wasn't a military kid, so this was not base to base and country to country or state to state necessarily, but we did, we moved a lot. So. Um, and, and I learned about what it means to move completely. So I don't really have a childhood connection to a place that I also have a teenage connection to, that I also have a 20-something connection to, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Um, and the other thing that I find really interesting about what is happening to these two main characters in these two novels is, you know, we know at the front that Blanca's mother has died. That's the first thing that... that well, one of the first things that we learn, Sia, and I can't talk too much about it, but Sia has also lost his mother in a very different way because they are gods, Um, but there is definitely a struggle to be a person who was once mothered who no longer has a mother, and how do you think about that relationship in the case of Blanca, how do you think about that relationship now that you no longer have any evidence of it, except that you still exist, and how do you think about that relationship in sia's case, where there is very real evidence of it, and yet the person who was his mother, the goddess who was his mother, is no longer there um, It's actually sort of complicated, and he he she struggles with it, I mean which I think is really important them um, to remember so uh, yeah that that was really. I don't know. That was a surprise. That was a surprise. They they both went back to the places where they mourned their mothers the most. Okay, so uh, that check-in done. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have a wonderful day. And we'll see you tomorrow. That's all for today. Be sure to tune in tomorrow to see what kinds of nonsense I get up to then. Shop local, support your local library, and keep your bookshelves brave. Thank you so much for listening. Bye now.